welcome to the Lubber's Hole, the Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are traveling through the landscape of the Aubrey Matra novels of Patrick O'Brien. So Mike, tell us where in the landscape we were last week and tell us what the view ahead of us could be this week. Yeah. In last week, we started chapter nine and it was so big, we divided it in half. So in part one, Jack was really upset by the government obstruction he was facing as a result of Stephen's duel when they first arrived in Sydney. You know, Jack's finding that he can't get the ship ready. Stephen's finding that he can't learn the location of prisoners that he and other crew members wanted to visit. And Stephen apologized to Jack for all the you know, the heartache that's come as a result of this duel here. Well, Stephen did, however, get some good news. He learned that his fortune never moved to the bank that failed. So, yeah, Sir Joseph Blaine let him know that he's still rich. Stephen asked Mrs. Macquarie, the governor's wife, for help finding a home for the little girls. Stephen and Martin joined John Paulton, Martin's college friend for dinner, and they talked about the power of novels, the need for an ending in a novel, you know, vote yes or no, and Poulton's desire to finish his novel so that he can return to London. And this time, as we finish out chapter nine, we're still in and around Sydney as we talk about almost orphanages, midnight commotions, heartwarming reunions, possible help for Padine, and plans for a journey. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. So we finished last week's episode, beginning of chapter nine, midway through a dinner between Stephen and Martin and John Paulton. And we're back with that same dinner, continuing the conversation. Paulton says that corruption has its uses. He's a a little bit of a moral relativist, is our Paulton, and we get to talk about that a little bit. His manuscript, he says, for his novel is currently being fair copied by a prisoner who's a forger, described by Paulton as the best pen in the colony. Maybe that's a high bar, maybe not. Stephen asks if there is, in fact, a great deal of corruption here. And Paulton says that with the exception of the new governor and his people, it's almost universal. For example, he says, nearly all the clerks are convicts, often quite highly educated men. And so long as you are reasonably discreet, they will do anything you wish. Just let's let that phrase sit there. Anything you wish. I wonder what Stephen could be wishing for about now. Anyhow, Stephen says, well, what I'd really like to do is see some of the prisoners and maybe he's got his own agenda in mind and maybe he's aware of the agenda of some of the rest of the ship's crew as well. Paulton suggests going to see this guy called Painter. He's one of the clerks that keeps the register. Um, He's managed to get in the past real shepherds and farm laborers sent to the farm in place of the prisoners who'd originally been assigned. So this has clearly been a beneficial kind of corruption. Uh, Paulton suggests that Stephen should have someone besides himself leave word at Riley's to set up a discreet meeting. Somebody besides himself, particularly because since the the low incident, Stephen is well-recognized and therefore not well-liked uh, around the place. Paulton offers to go himself, and Stephen says, no, I've got somebody in mind, thanks Paulton, and asks to see him again whenever he's at leisure. And as they're walking back to the landing place to catch a boat back out to the surprise, Stephen tells Martin that he likes Paulton. And I, I, I love the the admiring description, but slightly grudging admiration that we get here. He is not, says Stephen, he is not holier than thou, or at least than me. Although he is clearly a virtuous man, he is not horrified by moderate sin. <laughs> 
I might, I, I wouldn't mind having that on my gravestone. Yeah, here lies Ian Bradley. He was not horrified by moderate sin, especially not his own. Anyhow, we're back this, to this theme again, Mike, of how we, we think about the law and how it, it, it's relative and your perspective of how it applies to you is different from your perspective of how it applies to your fellow man. Uh, Stephen calls out for a boat and some of the surprises, Liberty men are walking by. They point out the ship and they laugh, thinking that the doctors are too drunk to see that the surprise has been warped right up to the wharf and they don't need a boat. And Mike, there's this really touching, poignant moment as Stephen realises, ah, I can't recognise my own ship, and then realises furthermore that it's not his anymore. Yeah. Woo. That, that, yeah, that, that did get me as well. Yeah. Well, back on board, his no longer his surprise, and in the cabin, Stephen examines Jack, the new owner, or about to become owner of the surprise, who's still not recovered from his plethora. And Jack says his plethora, and, and we take that to mean an overabundance of something, mm-hmm. is with obstructing officials. Yeah, he's less worried about <laughs> you know whether there's a problem with his liver, and, and more worried about getting something done. And he says, you know, Jack's explaining that with no one knowing when the governor will be back, and you know everybody being so unhappy, and finding out that the governor's deputy had served under Jack's father, General Aubrey, certainly not good news. <laughs> So this guy is not inclined to help Jack. Jack is really not able to get anything done. Now, Adams is helping with a lot of small stuff, but Jack's worried that if unless something changes, he's not going to be able to comply with his orders, which called for the utmost dispatch. Mm. And Stephen says he actually wants to use Adams to talk with a Clark to arrange these visits to prisoners. So uh, this other man that Stephen had in mind, ah, you know, Jack's clerk, the Adams, our man. At breakfast the next day, Adam says he thinks it's a good idea to use an older captain's clerk. He says these older fellas, he says, they've seen all the colours of the rainbow. They don't have to top it the knob. They are not easily done, even a very light brown. Of course, being done brown means having the wool pulled over your eyes. And he's happy to help. He and Stephen discussed the size of the present, the bribe, basically, for information about prisoners. And Adams convinces Stephen not to go in flashing gold about. And Stephen says, well, by all means, don't stint yourself. Offer more than one bottle of rum, which was Adams' initial point on the going prize. More than one, yeah, float them in rum if need be. Um, Stephen is really, really passionately interested in seeing Padine. And he's willing to put out quite a lot, I think. In the same spirit of liberating people, maybe, Stephen visits Bondon and Jemmy Ducks, who are getting the girls ready to visit Mrs. Macquarie. And Bondon is the best hand at sewing in the ship. He's well on the way to making new dresses. Jemmy Ducks is great at deportment, apparently. Who knew? Uh, and is teaching them to curtsy. And they're being turned into regular little, you know, Western European civilized little kids here in next to no time. Stephen steals Bondon for a moment to help get the money that's locked in a chest that's in the captain's storeroom and is fortunate to find out after his previous episode digging for stuff in a chest fortunate to find out that the rats have not got to it well Polton comes to visit he's, he's returning martin and stephen's visit and uh, you know when jack joins the three of them they're drinking madeira and Jack invites Polton to stay for dinner. And Polton's embarrassed. You know, he had no idea that officers ate dinner this early. He certainly didn't want to impose on anybody. 
But Stephen and Jack convince Polton to stay. It's Friday. They've got some great fish on offer here. And then we hear Killick, who's right on the other side of the wall, say, well, they've asked the shabby gent. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, they've asked the shabby gent to stay for dinner and go and tell the cook here. Uh, poor, uh, poor Killick, poor Polton. I'm hoping he didn't hear that here. So <laughs> in, as as oftentimes, you know, we have dinners in these books, we have music in these books, and sometimes we get the two of them together. Yeah. So there's some conversation over the dinner table here as these fellows discover a shared devotion, it says, a shared devotion to the string quartets of Haydn, Mozart, and Dittersdorf. And Mike, that, that got us both scratching our heads there. Did Dittersdorf for, for real? Or is this another one of Patrick O'Brien's kind of add-ins? So Haydn and Mozart, absolutely. We, we, we know fine well that these guys are fans of the work of Mozart. We'll come back to a Mozart reference in a short while. But Dittersdorf, you know, I, I scratch my head and I think I haven't heard or played very much Dittersdorf and it never really occurred to me that he's a great quartet composer. I dug through his list of compositions. He's quite prolific in terms of symphonies and concertos, so he's a big deal with orchestral music. But a grand total of six string quartets in the late 18th century does not make you a quartet composer worth being a fan of. So I think Dittersdorf is a bit of a a bit of a drop in there to make uh, make O'Brien look look wise. None of the Dittersdorf quartets made it onto the the album Musical Evenings in the Captain's Cabin that we quite often talk about and we've chatted about on Facebook in recent days. So there you go, Dittersdorf, prolific on the orchestral music, a bit of a minnow when it comes to chamber music. So sorry, but that's a pass. Well, as they go through this conversation about music, they return to a conversation about New South Wales. Mm. And, and Paul is saying, you know, there's, there may be a possibility for a great future, but no present for anyone other than people like the MacArthur's and, you know, the text reads and those infinitely hardy prisoners who can withstand loneliness, drought, flood, and a generally ungrateful soil. But for most of today's inhabitants, yeah, it's a desolate wilderness. They take refuge in drink and in being cruel to one another. So Polton still not a very favorable impression of this part of the, the world. Oh, and we, we try to complete our, our map of the area a little bit more, thinking, well, there must be some place that offers some respite from his grimness. So they ask Paulton about Wulu Wulu, the place where he has this farm. He says, well, it's a long ride, but a short journey by boat, showing them where it is on the charts. He invites them to come along at the end of the month. He offers a couple of naturalistic bits of interest here. Come and see the kangaroos playing among the lambs. Sounds great. And see the water mole which is thought very curious. And my, we're being dangled here, a little bit of a, a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of some platypus action that's still to come. So let's watch this space. Paulton invites them to come and visit. And Jack says he would like it if all things, if only the ship can spare him, and if it were the case that sailing is delayed. And I think both of those are things that he actually doubts. He adds that Stephen and Martin would particularly love it, and they can have one of the cutters anytime so jack's thinking i'm going to be tied to the ship he's willing to countenance some extended liberty for martin and stephen i wonder how this is all going to work out and jack's busyness with the ship takes us straight into the next chapter because he has to head over to the Parramatta river he has to look at spars at masts and booms with the carpenter and after he's gone Polton apologizes for the fact that his 
invitation is kind of postponed to the end of the month. He says it will be better to visit after his rigid and unsociable cousin, this guy Matthew, has left. Paulson himself now has to leave. And with a slightly quirky moment here, Mike, he asks if it's usual to give veils, that is to say, to tip the servants in the Navy. And uh, there's a little lesson here for some of the crew of the surprise. Yeah, I, I, I love this. You know, Stephen and Martin assure him that, no, no, we don't tip servants in the Navy. And and I, I couldn't help but feel like, there you go, Killick. You called him the shabby gent. And this was a guy who was going to leave you a little gold at the end here. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, a little <laughs> karma. I love that. Well, Stephen and Jimmy Ducks are, are, are walking Sarah and Emily the next day in their pretty new frocks to see what Stephen calls a most amiable lady at government house. And Stephen explains that the lady is both good and kind in what O'Brien tells us is a little bit too cheerful a voice. And I think we've all been here with young kids trying to be a little too happy and they start to catch on. Something's up here, right? Yeah. Well, as, as you know, Stephen's talking in his happy voice, they're passing these chain gangs and, and they want to know why are these people in change? And Stephen explains that they've behaved ill. And, you know, then they come across somebody who's being beaten and a testament to the surprise. Sarah and Emily have certainly never seen anybody flogged. They've never even seen anybody started by the bosun here. So Stephen is trying to distract them. Hey, look at the horses. Look at the carriages. Look at the red coats. But Sarah and Emily are kind of really fixed on the beating. So I think their first impression of this area is not a good one here. Hmm. Yeah. And you've got to wonder how it must look to them as well. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, Mrs. Macquarie receives them, complimenting them on their frocks, complimenting Jemmy Ducks and Bondon as well, I think, and kissing them as they curtsy. So it looks like the plan is falling into place. The deportment, the, the couture is all kind of playing well so far. The girls grow less tense as they eat and drink, and that's another great way for parents to kind of set kids up at their ease. And Mrs. Macquarie tells them a bit about the orphanage with girls their age running around playing games. She says there's a park with trees. And the girls ask if the girls at the orphanage have pretty dresses. And she says, not as pretty as yours. Very smart answer from Mrs. Macquarie there. Mm -hmm. And they walk around to Mrs. Macquarie's carriage. She and the girls get in and Stephen stands back and tells them that he and Jemmy Ducks will come and see them tomorrow. Be good girls now till then. God bless. Ain't we coming back to the barky? asked Emily, and the wild look returned. Not today, mates. You got to see the orphanage, said Jemmy Ducks. And as the carriage moved off, both little girls stood up, looking at him with faces of alarm, distress, and woe, until it turned the corner. And Mike, this is a... Oh, I mean... This was so close to being a nice moment, but it's pretty clear that the girls have smoked this for what it really is. And it's it's not only the girls who are having a second thought here. No, no, that's, that's absolutely right, Ian. So, you know, Jimmy Ducks and Stephen start walking back towards the ship and, and Jimmy Ducks exclaims involuntarily, and in such a country as this, God love us. So he's like, you know, well, how can we possibly be leaving the girls here? Uh, Stephen, realizing that Jimmy Ducks is in a bad way, gives him a shilling, points out a tavern where he can go have a drink. And it, uh, you know, O'Brien tells us that Stephen walks along 
mechanically sort of looking at the birds. So not enthralled, not completely taken up, but he's mechanically looking at these birds. And then the text says, and repeating the eminently sound reasons for his action. So I think we've all been here. Let me explain to myself, why am I doing this again? Why did I think this was a good idea? So yeah, not in a good way, these two. When Stephen gets back to the ship, Adams finds him and tells him he's just left Mr. Painter, this clerk that that, uh, Fulton had told him about. And he says, but first he saw Jimmy Ducks, as the text says, his face running with tears. So both of these guys have been really touched here. You know, and this is the guy, Jimmy Ducks, the guy who escaped to the sea to kind of get away from his girls. And now he's so attached to these girls, he's not wanting to leave them there. So really, really nice here. And Stephen tells him that they, you know, tells Adams that they took the girls to the orphanage. And Adam replies, wait. In a country like this, and then recollects himself and sort of breaks off, and uh, you know says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know what's best, right?" Uh, so Adams brings out the list of names that he took to Painter. So you know, Stephen had put Padine on the list, and Bondin had a list, and the Sethians had a list. He has good news about several of Slade's friends, the Sethians, and directions on where to find him. Sadly, all the people on Bondin's list have either died or were sent to Norfolk Island. Mm -hmm. Uh, Norfolk Island, he explains, is a penal station meant to scare the convicts here into submission. So it's like, if you don't behave here, you'll go to a really tough place. I can't imagine what that was like here. And Padine Coleman has had a very bad time of it. He's had multiple escape attempts. He's been last time returned for a reward. He was almost starved when he was brought back. One of the Irishmen that he escaped with died during the punishment flogging when he returned. And Padine survived, but he survived 200 lashes. The 200 lashes had killed his colleague there. He would have been, Adam says, sent to this same penal colony, but Dr. Redfern had intervened and said that, you know, sending Petty in there would kill him and had assigned him to an estate. But Mr. Painter, getting further information for Adams, said that this estate is owned by a clergyman, Mr. Marsden, who loves to flog Irish papists. And Coleman, who's in the hospital now, won't last a year at this estate. And we remember Marsden as one of the yeah. guys. You know, sitting across from Stephen at that dinner. Yeah. So this is this is not good news. Ah, well, since, since we've had this Dr. Redfern mentioned, Stephen, who's acting as the kind of voice of the reader here, says, well, who, who is this Redfern anyway? And Mike, another great example, lots of the administrators that Patrick O'Brien writes in this kind of Far Eastern story arc of the last couple of books are quite closely based on real life, actually based on real life. So we've had Macquarie, We've had raffles. And now this guy, Redfern, turns out is a a real person as well. Adams gives the explanation in the world of the book. He says, this is our Dr. Redfern, Dr. Redfern of the Nor in 97. The Nor being the famous Nor mutiny, one of the famous great uprisings of seamen against conditions in the Navy at the time. Redfern, it turned out, had told the mutineers to stick closer together, to be more united, and was court-martialed sentenced to hang, was sent to the colony and later given a free pardon or was got for him by Captain King. It says that Redfern has the best practice in Sydney, always has a kind word for a sick convict, spending much of his time at the hospital. And Stephen, thanks Adams for all of this great work, gives him some more money and tells him to take Painter and his more respectable colleagues out for the best dinner in Sydney. Such allies, he says, 
are not to be neglected. Now, this, this Redfern that's described here was the real individual, pretty much exactly as uh, Stephen and others have described him for us here. Probably born in Canada, we think. Grew up in England, qualified as a surgeon, was actually a surgeon's mate for a few months running up to the time when HMS standard mutinied in the non-mutiny. His death sentence, as described in the text here, was commuted to life imprisonment because he was young, because he was inexperienced, because he was a surgeon's mate. Having been sent out to the colony, he made an impact at Norfolk Island as an assistant surgeon, was pardoned by Governor King, the naval governor, in 1803. And in Sydney, he became known as the father of Australian medicine. He eventually introduced smallpox vaccines. He improved conditions on the ships that were taking people out to New South Wales. He gained a great reputation and a considerable fortune. Family physician to the MacArthur's and the Macquarie's, visited the regent in England in 1822 to petition on behalf of freed emancipists, as they're called. All this with great thanks to the uh, the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, which is a great go-to source if you ever want to dig into this stuff for yourself. There's an interesting follow-up to this. Governor Macquarie himself played a part in elevating Redfern status as part of his emancipation program, noting that emancipation, when united with rectitude and long-tried good conduct, should lead a man back to that rank in society which he had forfeited. And reflecting the fact that even for a pardoned convict, there was still a ceiling for former convicts, men like Redfern, and uh, and Redfern, later with Macquarie's recognition, had been trying to rectify that ceiling. So it's it's a nice little moment here, not only of a connection to a real person, but a connection to a story that's got a bit of redemption attached to it. Because so far, Mike, for those of the characters who are here... In the Botany Bay area, it doesn't sound like there's much redemption going on. No, pretty pretty grim, pretty parched, and I'm feeling a little parched myself. Yeah. What do you what do you think? It a little break here. We'll refresh ourselves. We'll bask in the redemption, and then come back and see how our story continues. Fantastic idea. If you're enjoying the podcast please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. I hope all of you had a good break. You're feeling revived and elevated like Dr. Redfern had been. Mm. And you know, we're going to return back to the story. And Ian, we've got another musical reference coming back. Yeah, we do. Two, two back to back, in fact. On the ship that night, Martin returns aboard with a copy of Paulton's book, the, the manuscript, all but the last unwritten chapter with this open question here. What kind of an ending does it need? Does it need an ending at all? Uh, Martin says that Poulton has invited them to dine and to play the Mozart D minor quartet on the Sunday night. And Mike, I, I loved the little digging expedition that I went on for this because, first of all, like let, let's count the number of Mozart D minor quartets. Not very many. Mozart didn't write very many minor key quartets, only two in D minor. I think it's quartet number 15, K421. This is the second of a set of quartets that were dedicated to Haydn, so right context musically nice um, it's the only one of that set that's in a minor key believed to have been completed in 1783 and mozart biographical legend has it that this quartet was completed while mozart's wife constanza was in labor with her first child raymond and constanza said that she thought 
that the rising string figures in the second movement corresponded to her cries from the other room. Well, Mike, for, for most of the second movement, these rising figures are quite gentle and benign, not really sounding like anybody's idea of, of labor or childbirth, but it gets a bit more intense towards the end of the second movement. Let's listen to some of this, these rising figures and see whether they correspond. Well, now that we know what it is that we're going to be playing, they get the chance to discuss it. And Martin says he's reluctant to pass the invitation along because he describes his own playing as at best indifferent. And we've had calls already to comment on Martin's uh, intonation on his viola. And Stephen says, not at all. He reminds Martin that none of us are Tartinis, suggests that Martin may tune a little sharp, but it could be Stephen's ear in this very diplomatic, courtly way that Stephen has of saying, you play out of tune, but perhaps it was me. Uh, maybe a pitch pipe or a tuning fork would be helpful. Now, Tartini is another little reference. I, I like Tartini as a reference a little bit more than I like Dittersdorf, to be honest, Mike. Um, Tartini, 18th century Italian composer and violinist, really of the, the old Galant age, the Baroque era, not really a Dittersdorf Haydn type of, uh, of composer. His most famous work was the Devil's Trill Sonata, a sonata for violin that requires a number of technically demanding double-stop trills. That's to say, trills with two sets of fingers at once. Difficult even wow. by modern standards. According to a legend that was kind of embellished and embroidered upon by a lady called Madame Blavatsky, a Russian writer, Tartini was inspired to write the sonata by a dream in which the devil appeared at the foot of his bed playing the violin. And Mike, it, it's only a short piece, it's got really terrifically bravura violin playing. It's not musically very deep. It's not no J.S. Bach, but it's really, really spectacular. Um, it's not a sonata in the strict 19th century sense, in the sense that you play it with a piano. It's written for a figured bass accompaniment, which means it's very often performed by a little string orchestra accompanying the violin player. So it sounds a bit more like a concerto. So I like the, like the devil's trill idea. Maybe that's appropriate, given that we're talking about Hades as a comparison for all the scenery here in New South Wales. I'm amazed at how many times Haiti has, has come up in this chapter and all the devil's references. And I, and I couldn't help but getting a little earworm of the devil went down to Georgia when <laughs> I was reading through this piece Maybe. and thinking about it. But, you know, I've, I've got to put that to one side here. Well, and, and O'Brien helped me do that very quickly. You know, Martin's sitting there with Paulton's unfinished manuscript, and he's telling Stephen that he really likes it. He likes the first page that he's read so far, and he reads it to Stephen. And on that page, a husband says that marriage has many virtues, such as persuading a man that, as the text says, he is neither omniscient nor even infallible. It goes on to say that, you know, if a husband makes a wish, it will be denied countered, crossed, contradicted, or it will be followed by but, and then there'll be a list of all the reasons why it's really not a good wish for him or his quote-unquote real desires. So <laughs> you know, we, get, we get quite the, uh, the beginning to this novel here. So the husband in the novel's wife replies that he has perhaps not considered, as, as Poulton writes, 
that a wife is commonly less well-educated, usually poorer, and always physically weaker than her husband, and that without she assert herself and assert her existence, she is in danger of being wholly engulfed. And, you know, this this seems to me kind of a a nice theme. O'Brien has used this before in a lot of male-female relationships, and it sounds a little bit like something, you know, I can almost see Diana saying, but with a tongue firmly planted in cheek here, because none of the weaknesses are true of her. But kind of that, you know, I know that people like to see men and women this way here. So, and I think as, as always a little bit of Jane Austen sounding through here, right? Yeah. It's, it's got a little bit of the, the echo of that quote where it says, uh, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It's, it's clearly right. the, op- the opposite sentiment to that, but it's got this kind of slightly barbed cynical worldview of, of, uh, of relationships here. Anyway. Mm. So Paulton's novel, we, we're starting to get a picture of how it's working out here. Stephen says, he would love to read it all when his mind is at rest, as long as that's okay with Paulton. But right now, he's too worried, too focused on Padine. And we get into what's the current situation with Padine. Stephen shows Martin an accounting of Padine's punishments on a ledger page that Adams had brought in. And the, the columns list, numbers of lashes, close confinement, punishment, iron weights. It's a really, really grim catalogue mm. of all these punishments that Padine has suffered. Not once, but many, many times. They agree that it's inhuman. And Stephen tells Martin where Padine is he's headed. That is to say, in the direction of the, the custody of this grim papist flogging clergyman. But, he says, they might be able to change that if Paulton thinks Painter could get Padine sent to Wulu Wulu, just as other farmhands have been redirected here. And if Paulton should agree to receive him. And assuming that they can make all of these things kind of slide into place... Stephen is still undecided about whether he should go and see Padine personally. He doesn't want to draw attention to Padine. He's clearly aware that his own presence is kind of known about and disliked. He stays up much of the night deciding and along the way reading Paulson's manuscript. And all of this reverie and this kind of impasse that he's come to is broken for him by a hullabaloo on deck in the middle of the night. And the bosun crying, come out of that, you goddamn sods. So, Mike, I wonder what could have been going on here. Yeah, I wondered the same thing, Ian. In, in, in the morning, Tom Pullings and Stephen are sitting there at breakfast in the gun room, and Pullings asked Stephen if he heard the roaring in the middle watch. And Pullings explains that the little girls had run aboard, called for Jimmy Ducks. Ducks was dead drunk, and the girls whipped up into the foretop. Oaks had gone up to try to get them down, and they threw a top ball, you know, it's very heavy hammer, at him and roared that they were not leaving the ship. So Tom is kind of watching Stephen as he's telling him this. Stephen is like, you know, putting a little marmalade on his toast and very nonchalant. And Tom says, what are we going to do about them? Should we send Bondin up after them? And Stephen says, no, no, no. Hunger and thirst will bring the girls down. Just ignore them. Very wise. Yeah. (laughs) Stephen remembers, you know, as a youth climbing this precarious tree to get a kitten, only to have the kitten leave right before Stephen gets there. So it's like, no. Yeah, we'll, we'll let it go. So it turns out that Stephen was almost right. They do come down of their own, but not from hunger and thirst. 
They come down when they need to go to the head. Yeah. <laughs> and they're shouting down on deck there and, and tell them that they need to use the head. And Stephen tells them to go right to the head and they go right to the hammocks that they'll be staying on the ship. So oh. maybe we're bringing a little resolution to Jimmy Ducks, to Stephen, and to Emily and Sarah here. Yeah. yeah. They've been everybody a bit happier. Well, Martin returns and they decide that he and Stephen are going to walk to the hospital. Now that we've got Emily and Sarah taken care of, we tentatively make steps towards resolving the situation for Padeen here. He had told Paulton the story of Padeen and says that Paulton would be happy to receive Padeen out on the farm there on the condition that Padeen won't try to escape. Because if that would happen, Paulton's position here would be intolerable for the next year, he says. And Stephen wonders why he's staying here for a year then, if it's so intolerable. And Martin explains that Paulton doesn't have the money to take his manuscript to London, so he'll have to send it. It'll take that long to arrange for his book to be published, so he has the money to go back to England. He wants Stephen, therefore, to guarantee that Padeen will not escape for a year while he waits for the money to go home. And Mike, this sounded to me like a bit of a contrivance. It's a very kind of messy constraint that Paulton's put himself under here. But it works for the plot because this situation with Padine is going to become important to us, especially as we dig into exactly what people mean about the different situations here. Stephen notes that John Paulton had used the word escape when everyone here actually talked about prisoners absconding, that is to say, leaving hurriedly and secretly. And Stephen says he can't guarantee that Padine won't escape, but that he can give Paulton the money. Remember, Stephen's back in funds now. His financial affairs are all in order. He's more than capable of giving Paulton enough money to cover the advance on the book to take his own book back to London then so that he can leave whenever he wants. That way, Paulton won't have to worry about the possibility of an escape by Padine. He gets the publication. He gets to leave early. Everybody apparently gets happy. They still have to get a little bit of a, a quid pro quo ironed out here. Stephen says that to John, that if, if you'll dedicate this book, which is more a disquisition on the status of women in an ideal society and a discussion of the currently accepted contract between the sexes than what is ordinarily called a novel or tale, if he will dedicate this book to Lavoisier. We'll come back to Lavoisier in a second. But he then asks for Martin's help in arranging this slightly complicated, slightly contrived contract here. Martin tells Stephen that this is the usual price for a dedication. He names a sum. And Stephen says Martin's hardly generous at that sum to his friend or to the memory of Lavoisier. So Stephen's clearly minded to be generous here. They head back to the ship to get Stephen's money for Martin to take to Paulton and to make the proposal. Martin asks, what about the little girls? And Stephen says, that's all taken care of. I'm not taking them back to government house. I'm going to make my my excuses to Mrs. Macquarie. They're staying on the ship. So all, all headed in the right direction here. Mike, to r- remind us, I think we've heard about Lavoisier before. What do we know about this guy? Antoine Lavoisier, 1743 to 1794. French nobleman, scientist, chemist, inventor, central to 18th century chemical revolution. Mm. So the history of chemistry, as well as the history of biology. Uh, and, and interestingly, you know, we kind of think of him sometimes as one of those noblemen executed as part of the French Revolution. But studying his real life, you know, he used a lot of his work to help the general population. But he was also a member of you know, the English is the Farmers General, which was a private tax collecting institution 
that controlled a lot of the commerce in France. And mm. that was kind of what led him to being guillotined in 1794. Interestingly, Lavoisier married the daughter of one of the top guys in Farmers General. So that that kind of, you know, deepened his relationship to this institution. She was 13 at the time and she becomes his scientific partner. She does all the translating to and from English for him. He was not very good at that. And really, over time, becomes a, you know, many people think a full collaborator in his work. So very fitting this dedication to this novel about, you know, the the, the relationship between the sexes and Lavoisier. Now, in the books, we have Stephen saying that Lavoisier had been kind to him when he was younger, that Lavoisier's widow is a good friend of Stephen and Diana's. Mm. But we can go back even further in the canon, and we remember Lavoisier as the guy who created the trepan yeah. that Martin had almost used to cut into Stephen's brain. So, you know, we know Stephen had used an earlier version earlier in the canon, but in Far Side of the World, there was this one that Lavoisier had worked on and and made a better instrument, although one Martin wasn't very comfortable with and, and thankfully didn't have to, to use. Well, in the letter of Mark, we also had a man saying that cutting off Lavoisier's head and saying that they don't need men of science in France was proof positive why France would lose the war. And in fact, in real history, the judge did say the Republic needs neither scholars nor chemists. So Stephen's fondness of Lavoisier, the fictional account of Stephen and Diana's relationship to the widow, a good pretext here, but also a nice way for O'Brien to come back to this relationship between men and women, which, you know, Sometimes I think we miss in a in a, a nautical historical fiction, thinking yeah. it's all going to be at sea, and realize no, no, there's there's a lot of this in all of life in this canon. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen gets all dressed and cleaned up, and uh, he goes to see the governor's mansion, and he finds that Mrs. Macquarie is not at home. He uh, he he decides that there's another kangaroo on the lawn moment here. He decides to use the kangaroo as a conversation partner and says, shall I ever at any time get out of this sink of iniquity and travel inland with the fouling piece and the collecting case? And my, St- Stephen's pretty desperate and pretty longing now. His, his high ideals of nothing shall be harmed in the pursuit of science for in, in Kumai a book ago is long forgotten. He'd like to get out there and collect some stuff and he's ready to collect some things you know, in in the traditional, slightly brutal way that naturalists do. He goes over to Riley's hotel and buys two horses for him and Martin to use on their journey. Um, he meets Jack and the carpenter on the road and learns that they couldn't get the spars that they'd been looking for mm. up on Parramatta River because of interference from the government. Surprise, surprise. Stephen tells Jack about the little girls and asks if he, Jack, dislikes having them aboard. Jack says, never in life. He enjoys them skipping about and prefers them to Stephen's wombat, the wombat that had eaten his hat on their last journey there, which Mike, I think, would be way back in, I guess, Desolation Island. Anyway. Right, on the leopard. Yeah, exactly. Stephen notes that Jack is still looking a bit yellowish and far from well, and Jack wonders then when the governor might be coming back. Stephen says, I'll ask Mrs. Macquarie the very next day. Well, 
the next day, Stephen is happy because John Poulton has wholly accepted both of Stephen's proposals. He's going to do the dedication to Lavoisier and take Stephen's money. And this this was the real escape, I think, that Poulton was you know, referring to. Not Pedin's escape, but John Poulton's escape from, from New South Wales to get back to London. And he is going to take Padine on the farm there. So this is this is great news for Stephen. And he's going to assign Padine a gentle task like watching the lambs on the farm. So something that Padine can do kind of off as a shepherd by himself a little bit here. Well, Adams leaves once they got news about that. And he's back within less than an hour, uh, having met with Painter and saying Padine's transfer has been completed. So mm. that's a done deal. Padine is going to Wooloo Wooloo. Yeah. So Stephen heads off to Government House. And as he's walking up to see Mrs. Macquarie again, uh, he meets and introduces himself to Dr. Redfern. Redfern says, you know, ah, it's, you know, it's good to meet you. I've read some of your works and offers to be any service he can be to him while he's on the island. And Stephen tells him about Padine, and Redfern offers to take Stephen to see him at the hospital, saying that Mrs. Macquarie won't be receiving folks for a few days. She's ill and confined to her bed. They talk a little bit about her liver, and Stephen discusses some of his concerns about Jack's liver with Redfern and asks his opinion. And then Stephen sees this vessel emitting lots of smoke and asks Redfern about it, and Redfern explains that any ship that's leaving the harbor is purged with this sulfur smoke to drive out or kill any stowaway convicts. And we've had all of this malaise about this whole place and the convicts and the hangings and the floggings. And, you know, now Mrs. Macquarie is sick and infestation, stowaways, booze, cruelty, starvation. And now, you know, killing or driving out with sulfur smoke. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to get back to see myself sometime soon or out in the yeah. countryside, as Stephen was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It even makes you wonder when Stephen and Martin head off on their, their country journey, are they going to get relief from all of this? Are they going to find mm-hmm. more you know, pestilence and, and, and cruelty? It sounds, sounds, like a, sounds like we've got a lot waiting for us in the last chapter, but we're not quite there yet. Not, quite, not quite there, there yet. yet. Over at the hospital. Redfern, who we meet, apologizes for the state of the hospital buildings and is looking forward, he says, to the new one that the governor and Mrs. Macquarie are building. I, I, I know there's a hospital right now in Sydney named after Macquarie. I don't know if it's the same one or the same site, but clearly this was going to be one of Macquarie's legacies to the Sydney area, to New South Wales in, in the real timeline here. He tells Stephen that he's worried about Padine's dejection of spirits and utter neglect of food and hopes Stephen's visit will comfort him. Redfern shows Stephen Padine's healing back. The bone is almost completely covered again. And Mike, you, you can hardly imagine what kind of state Padine's back must have been in. Now, Stephen, it turns out, is not only worried about the injuries to Padine's back from flogging, he's worried about the emaciation. Padine has been starved or has come to be starved. And there's this really, really tender moment, really touching moment. He lays his hand on Padine's back and says quietly in his ear, never stir now. God and Mary be with you, Padine. God and Mary and Patrick be with you, doctor, came the slow, almost dreaming reply. The eye opened, a singularly sweet smile lit that famine time face, and he said, I knew you would come. Um. 
Stephen holds Padine's trembling hand and tells him to say nothing to anyone, but he'll be going to a place where he'll be more kindly treated and Stephen will see him there. He gives instructions that Padine should eat all he can until Stephen sees him again. God and Mary be with you, he finishes as he walks back to the ship. More moved, says O'Brien, than he believed possible. Wow. All right. It's, it's, it's wow. a lovely, lovely moment. Yeah. Whew. Bit of redemption for Stephen. Life-changing moment for Padine. And, you know, you, you can see now how O'Brien has brought Padine back to our consciousnesses so that we were, we, we were ready for this. And it's absolutely worth the moment here. It really is. This is one of those characteristically canon-like touching moments that, that you know, really, really get me. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, me too. Stephen's walking back to the ship as he gets close and comes on board. He hears Jack and Martin practicing the D minor quartet. And he notes that Martin's viola is mellower than usual. So apparently the tuning advice has been taken here. He remembers that they're going to John's tonight. And, and thankfully, he realizes he's already dressed for the occasion because he dressed to see the governor's wife. He tells Jack and Martin about Padine and how Redford told him about the convicts easing the suffering of others who had been flogged. So that, you know, the way that when these guys get these horrific sentences that the convicts, who sometimes can be pretty, uh, you know, not the nicest of people, you know, really did care for each other. And Jack remembers his messmates doing the same thing for each other after a flogging. Now, Stephen says Redford also gave him a lot of information for his journey with Martin. So some real good tips about where they were heading and not getting lost and that sort of thing. And Jack says, well, you did mention a journey before we crossed Capricorn, but I've forgotten just what you had in mind. And Stephen says, well, since the ship is likely to be here for about a month, I thought that with your leave, we should travel inland towards the Blue Mountains and back in a southern sweep to Botany Bay. And, you know, having spent some time, you know, outside of Sydney and gone through the Blue Mountains and everything, this is a great idea. Could, could make for great traveling here. You know, and Stephen says, you know, they're thinking about going for perhaps a fortnight. Uh, they'll come back, see if their services are needed, and then, you know, perhaps make a northern tour passing by Poulton's place until the the surprise is ready to sail. Well, Jack says, with all my heart, and I hope you'll find a phoenix on her nest. So, you know, a little bit of this ill will between Jack and Stephen seems to be, you know, particularly Jack being upset about the duel. Have a great trip. See all the most amazing natural things that you want to. And, uh, you know, nice place to leave off. That's the end of chapter nine. Ah, fantastic. Mike, definitely worth taking two episodes over it. Loads and loads going on in this chapter. Really, it's, it's funny. It's not got the high dramatic tension of, you know, the, the novels that have got a, a, a big action coming or a big kind of turning point for one of the characters. But this really, really tender connection with Padine tells yeah. me that that's where we're headed in the closing chapter of the book here. All of this story of inhumanity of one man to another, that under kindness at the same time shown by one individual to another, we've got kindness to people who've been flogged. We've got the connection to the little girls. We've got all the friendship and the mutual support amongst the people aboard the surprise, including Martin and Stephen and Jemmy Ducks and Adams and all the rest. Loads of great references, miles and miles deep for us to dig into as well. So it's been loads of fun putting these two together. Yeah. 
Well, it does seem a little bit strange. As much as I'm loving this chapter, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, O'Brien's really good about 10 chapters per book. You know, it's sort of got that cadence down. Now, some of them might be very long, some are very short, but with one chapter left, Jack doesn't seem to have gotten very far along in terms of getting the ship ready to continue their mission. Stephen and Martin yep. are now headed off into the countryside. You know, I, I wonder, are they going to find a phoenix or, or perhaps mm. something a, a little less fantastic, <laughs> a little more earthy? Padine, I love that his fate sounds like it's about to get, you know, pointed in a better direction here. It was so good to see him. But I'm kind of scratching my head wondering, how's O'Brien going to finish all of this off here? Right. There's so many threads to potentially tie up. Will the governor come back? Will we actually meet Macquarie in person? Never mind his right. wife, and, there, and thereby help Jack finally to get prepared for this voyage, which we've been told already needs to proceed with the utmost dispatch. How much time are we going to stay more in New South Wales? What's going to happen with Stephen and Martin's trip? Those trips can be a bit hit and miss, given Martin's experience with night apes and tapirs and cook twos. Who knows what kind of injuries he's going to suffer? Mike, I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say next week? to wrapping up the nutmeg of consolation with just one more chapter of patrick o'brien i would like that of all things for violin that requires a numbly there 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 that requires a number <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get there in the end